I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Two cases are before the U.S. Supreme Court regarding protections provided by Section 230 of the U.S. Communications Decency Act. Gonzalez versus Google claims that a platform, in this case YouTube, should be liable for content it recommends to users. Twitter versus Tomna argues that Twitter provided unlawful material support for failing to remove users from its platform. A lot of people are talking about these cases, and a lot of well-intentioned and well-informed people are going to make arguments based on misunderstandings of Section 230. So in this special episode, I want to cover just what Section 230 is and what it isn't. In other words, I'll help you know a little more about Section 230. We covered the history and meaning of Section 230 in depth in the episode About Safe Harbor that was first published in July 2020, so if you want the deep dive, you can listen to that. This episode is going to focus on how to properly explain and think about Section 230, no matter what argument you may or may not be trying to make. You may think Section 230 promotes censorship. You may think it protects big tech companies from responsibility. You may think it should be repealed. Those are all reasonable positions to take, but I often hear people argue these sorts of positions from a starting point that is, well, wrong. I just want to give you the correct starting point from which you can make your argument, whatever that argument is. So let's start with folks who say we should just get rid of it. There's a misconception that if we get rid of Section 230, companies would have to take responsibility for the content on their platform or... That if we get rid of Section 230, they'll stop censoring. Neither one of those things is assured. Without Section 230, any platform, and it's worth pointing out, this applies to a forum you might run on your own website, as well as to huge platforms like Facebook. But without Section 230, any platform would be seen in the eyes of the law as either a publisher of information or a distributor of information. A publisher is responsible for what it publishes. A distributor is not responsible for the contents of what it distributes. The easiest way to think about this is a good old-fashioned brick-and-mortar bookstore. The publisher of the books and magazines it sells are responsible for what's in the books and magazines, not the bookstore. The bookstore is just the distributor. In fact, a 1959 Supreme Court case 
ruled that a bookstore owner cannot be reasonably expected to know the content of the hundreds of books it sells. You know, when you think about the millions of posts we're talking about in the online world, it puts it in perspective. A bookstore should only be liable if they know or should have known that selling something was specifically illegal. Otherwise, the publisher is liable for what's in the book or magazine, not the bookstore distributor, the publisher who put the words in print. Now, let's think about that for a minute. The bookstore can decide what magazines to carry, so it's exercising control. It decides what gets in the bookstore and what doesn't. It's not deciding what's in the magazine, and it still isn't allowed to sell magazines it knows are illegal. You know what kinds of magazines I'm talking about. Also of note is inside the magazine, letters to the editor may be published. Those are the responsibility of the publisher. Just because a reader wrote the letter doesn't free the publisher from liability. So the distributor can exercise control over what gets in the store, but not what's in the things it puts in the store. And the publisher is not freed from its responsibility for what it publishes just because someone else wrote it. So the bookstore gets protection because it's not exercising editorial control of what's in the books. Picking the books is not considered editorial control. Fast forward to the 1990s. CompuServe and Prodigy are vibrant new parts of the internet where people are talking to each other like never before. And if you think 1990 was somehow young and innocent and different than the internet of today, uh, it's not. It's just a matter of scale. But let's put ourselves in a 1990 frame of mind. It's April 1990. Sinead O'Connor's new song, Nothing Compares to You, written by Prince, tops the Billboard charts. Robert Blanchard's company, Cubby Incorporated, has developed Scuttlebutt with a K. <laughs> Scuttlebutt. It's a database for TV news and radio gossip. It's a new competitor for CompuServe's Rumorville, USA. Rumorville is published by Don Fitzpatrick Associates on CompuServe's journalism forum. Scuttlebutt and Rumorville are in stiff competition for the burgeoning online audience that wants TV and radio news industry gossip. This is 1990. This is five years before the Drudge Report began. Just keep that in mind. In the heat of the competition, Rumorville posts that Scuttlebutt has been getting info from a back door at Rumorville, and that Scuttlebutt's owner, Robert Blanchard, got, and I quote, bounced by WABC and, and this is the part you really don't do, folks, described Scuttlebutt as a scam. Blanchard, who runs Cubby, sued Don Fitzpatrick Associates, but also sued CompuServe as the publisher. Here's the thing. CompuServe did not review Rumorville's content. Rumorville was just posting it in the journalism forum. Once it was uploaded, it was instantly available. CompuServe also didn't get any money from Rumorville. The only money CompuServe makes 
is off the subscribers to CompuServe, and you subscribe to CompuServe to read anything, not just Rumorville. In Cubby Incorporated versus CompuServe, the judge ruled that CompuServe was not a publisher. It was a distributor. The judge said, it's like a bookstore. It could not reasonably know what was in the thousands of publications. I mean, a bookstore might have hundreds. This place has thousands of publications. It's it's the internet, this new electronic form of communication. Therefore, like a bookstore, CompuServe was not liable for what was published in Rumorville, USA. Reminder, this is before Section 230. There is no Section 230. The platform was not exercising control over the content, so it was not liable for what was in it. It could have bad content and not be responsible before Section 230. All right, let's jump ahead to October 1994. Boys to Men is dominating the charts with a long run at number one with I'll Make Love to You. And Prodigy's Money Talk message board is awash in talk about the ongoing bond market crisis. Amongst all this talk, an anonymous user posts that securities investment firm Stratton Oakmont had committed crime and fraud related to a stock IPO. Well, Stratton Oakmont says, no, we didn't, and files a lawsuit against Prodigy. Not against the anonymous user, against Prodigy. By the way, you can file a lawsuit against an anonymous user. That That's done all the time. So it wasn't because it was an anonymous that they didn't file the lawsuit. They said Prodigy was the publisher of the information. All right, so you now know about the CompuServe case, right? You're like, well, Prodigy's in pretty good shape here. It didn't publish the comments. The commenter did. Except it's a few years and a few raging internet flame wars later from that CompuServe case. And Prodigy, like many other platforms, has developed some content guidelines for users to follow. It also has appointed moderators, they call them board leaders, who are charged with enforcing those guidelines. Prodigy even uses some automated software in 1994 to screen for offensive language. This is all good community moderation practice, right? Clear set of guidelines, consequences if you violate them, you got mods to enforce the rules, even some automated ways to keep some of the bad stuff from ever showing up. Good for you, prodigy. Court looked at that and said, well, looks to us like you're exercising editorial control. You're deciding who gets to post what. That feels a lot more like letters to the editor than it does the bookstore. The court wrote, Prodigy's conscious choice to gain the benefits of editorial control has opened it up to a greater liability than CompuServe and other computer networks that make no such choice. In Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy, the court ruled in favor of Stratton Oakmont. After that case, the law, as interpreted by the courts, will give you protection as a distributor as long as you don't try to moderate. If you moderate the content, you're on the hook for it. So in other words, in these last years before Section 230 is enacted, you could either leave everything up or 
you'd have to be responsible for everything. Meaning, if you're not wild, you're going to pre-screen all the posts. Your choice is either zero moderation or prior restraint. So, Republican Chris Cox and Democrat Ron Wyden both thought, that's not an ideal situation. It seems like we're punishing people for trying to do the right thing. So, they wrote Section 230 into the Communications Decency Act, which read, No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Those are the 26 words usually cited as Section 230. And they mean, if you're providing the service and someone else wrote the stuff, you're not on the hook for what they wrote. However, and it's important when you're making these arguments to understand a little more, that's just paragraph one of subsection C. A lot of other subsections related to definitions and why the act is being made, etc. But there is another important point that is not usually raised. The second subparagraph of Section C, it's called civil liability. And it reads, No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. B, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action taken to enable or make available to information content providers or others the technical means to restrict access to material described in paragraph one. In other words, even if the First Amendment protects the speech, you are not going to be held liable if you take down stuff you find objectionable. I mean, yeah, they say obscene, lewd, lascivious, etc., but otherwise objectionable gives you wide latitude. And if you give people the tools to take it down, moderators or others, maybe filters, you're also not going to be held liable. So, It doesn't just say you're not going to be held liable for something somebody else puts up there. It's saying you can do moderation. You can do mod tools. Even if it's protected free speech, the platform can take down content it finds objectionable and not lose the protections from liability for other content. All of this is a long way of saying if the platform didn't create the content, it's not responsible for it, and it can remove it or not, with a few exceptions. There's another part of Section 230 that often gets left out of the discussion. Section 230 specifically says that this law will have no effect on several areas of other kinds of law, including criminal law. If it's a crime, you don't get off liability. Intellectual property law. So if it's violating copyright, you got to follow the copyright laws. Communications privacy. There's a 1986 law about electronic communications. Still got to follow that. You can't just put people's information out there. Or sex trafficking law. That one was added more recently. But for example, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act requires you to respond to a takedown notice in certain ways. That supersedes Section 230. You have to follow that one. 
All right. So that was a little bit of a history lesson to kind of bring you up to speed on what a distributor, what a publisher is, and how Section 230 kind of splits the difference from what we used to do with printed material or what we still do with printed material. So let's get back to those two Supreme Court cases, Gonzalez versus Google and Twitter versus Tomna. Section 230 does not let Facebook publish anything without being responsible for it. It just means it's not on the hook for what I post just because it decides to remove other posts. It's an interesting question whether recommendations count as content created by the platform or not. Remember, that's the Gonzalez versus Google case. Did the recommendation algorithm, and it kind of doesn't matter whether it's an algorithm or not, did the fact that YouTube was making recommendations make it YouTube's content? It would certainly count as editorial control without Section 230, but Section 230 was put in place specifically to allow a measure of editorial control without having to take responsibility for all the posts. It's also an interesting question whether terrorist content qualifies as criminal content, which Section 230 does not protect. And should Twitter have known about it and removed the accounts? Bearing on both those questions is one more case that came after the passage of Section 230. Section 230 was passed in 1996. However, the events of the case happened before 1996. It's April 25th, 1995. Montel Jordan's This Is How We Do It tops the charts. And someone has posted a message on an AOL bulletin board called Naughty Oklahoma T-shirts, describing the sale of shirts featuring offensive and tasteless slogans. This is from the court opinion. Offensive and tasteless slogans related to the Oklahoma City bombings, which had happened six days before. This is vile. It is meant to make people angry at a time when they are very raw and upset about these events. And the posting listed a phone number and said, ask for Ken. The phone number was for someone named Kenneth Zarin in Seattle, Washington. Kenneth Zarin had no knowledge of this posting, was not selling t-shirts, had nothing to do with it. It was a prank. He then received a high volume of calls, mostly, as you might expect, angry about the post. Some calls were death threats, very angry about the post. Zarin called AOL, like he called AOL because it's 1995. And AOL said, this is, yes, we're removing the post. Uh, we don't do retractions because we're a message board, but we will remove the post. However, the next day, a new post was made and new posts were made over the next four days. Now, mind you, AOL was going after the account as well, uh, but that's part of the case is, did they act fast enough, etc. However, one of those posts was picked up by a radio announcer at KRXO in Oklahoma City, who, as you might imagine, not knowing that this is not a real post, is incensed and encourages listeners to call the phone number. After that, Zarin required police protection. He sued KRXO for broadcasting that unverified information, and he separately sued AOL for allowing it to continue after he called and pointed out that it was happening. In its decision, 
the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit wrote, It would be impossible for service providers to screen each of their millions of postings for possible problems. Faced with potential liability for each message republished by their services, interactive computer service providers might choose to severely restrict the number and type of messages posted. Congress considered the weight of the speech interests implicated and chose to immunize service providers to avoid any such restrictive effect. It also wrote that Section 230, and now I quote again from the opinion, creates a federal immunity to any cause of action that would make service providers liable for information originating with a third-party user of the service. Thus, lawsuits seeking to hold a service provider liable for its exercise of a publisher's traditional editorial functions, such as deciding whether to publish, withdraw, postpone, or alter content, are barred. In other words, if the service provider, in this case it's AOL, but could be Facebook now, wants to decide whether to publish something or not, wants to pull stuff off, wants to alter the content, it's fine. It can do that. And it will not be liable for what the third party posted. Now, Zarin argued that even if AOL wasn't a publisher, it was a distributor. And under the 1959 case, a distributor would still need to be responsible for speech it knew was illegal. And so, since it knew this speech was defamatory, shouldn't it still have a responsibility? Yes, it's not responsible as a publisher, but is it responsible as a distributor? Zarin argued AOL knew that these posts were happening because he called them about it after the first post. The judge, however, says that no, because AOL isn't a distributor. You can't just redefine them as a distributor because they're protected as a publisher. They are a publisher, plain and simple. They published these posts. However, Section 230 shields them from the liability afforded a publisher. You can't just say, oh, so if they're a publisher, they're protected. Let's call them something else. The judge says they're either a distributor or a publisher. They are a publisher. And Section 230 says that they don't have to be liable like a publisher. After that case, we had stricter protection for a distributor than the 1959 case. Instead of having to take it down once you knew about it, internet services were given this very broad shield. And that became the principal justification for the current CDA 230. If the Supreme Court follows the precedent, it might, and I don't claim to know the Supreme Court well enough to know whether it will or not, but it might consider recommendations to be publishing behavior and therefore protected. It might not consider them publishing behavior. Uh, it's not the only way it could rule, but it's a possibility. In the end, though, what I want folks to take away here is that Section 230 doesn't free a tech platform to do whatever it wants. It frees a platform to choose to moderate and exercise editorial control over the posts of others without having to assume responsibility for the thousands or maybe millions or now billions of posts made every day. Now, it's reasonable to argue that perhaps there are some responsibilities that should be restored to tech platforms through legislation. I think it's worth pointing out, though, that repealing Section 230 altogether without modifying it or replacing it would not achieve that. So I hope 
Now you have a firmer basis upon which to base your opinion, whatever it is. In other words, I hope you know a little more about Section 230. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 